Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that pilots the planes of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm flying through these films with them. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. So, Michael, um, this is... In a weird way, although it's episode five of six and series three of however long, feels like a season finale, slightly. It certainly feels almost like an end-of-year exam or something, like the oh, no, culmination no. of all of the work till now. Oh, you've given me a lot of pressure for my review later on. <laughs> hey, I hope you pass. <laughs> so this film this week is The Wind Rises, which is currently Hayao Miyazaki's last released feature film. Yes, and he has retired and is definitely not making anything else, as certainly, he always does when he retires. Certainly not a film next year, or the year after that, we'll see. But this almost works as a final film. That's it. It really feels like it. And uh, I really want to kind of learn a lot about how this film came to be because mm-hmm. it feels more so than any of his others like a personal project. And I'm really fascinated to hear what you make of it because when we put together this wayward journey through these films, I knew that we were giving you some of the big hitters up front and going into deep cuts and then trading back and forth, bringing in younger filmmakers and so on. But it wasn't until I sat down to rewatch this film that I realized that almost every film we've covered to date has prepared you for this one. Mm. So I can't wait to see what your response is. But first, we should do a synopsis, then we'll do the context... Then we're going to ride those winds. <laughs> I can't wait. In early 20th century Japan, a young boy named Jiro dreams of airplanes. Over the ensuing decades, 
We follow him as he moves to Tokyo to study engineering and as he lands a job as an engineer at the Mitsubishi Corporation, designing aircraft during the years of rapid modernization and militarization in the lead-up to the Second World War. We see these turbulent years through Jiro's eyes as he attempts to square his idealistic views with the destructive applications of his creations. We also follow his romance with Naoko, a young woman he meets during the devastating Tokyo earthquake of 1923 and then by chance meets again years later. But as we soon find out, Jiro's life's work and his life's love are both cursed dreams. So, Michael, uh, we proposed back in our Porco Rosso episode the idea that, in a way, the construction of planes can be a lovely reflection of the construction of animation of films and that there's been this read of plane building and animation Mm -hmm. and Miyazaki all circling in the same vicinity. And uh, I wonder if maybe we can get that read again on this film. Well, he, he certainly homes in on a similar similar vibe to Porco Rosso. In fact, actually, it starts very similarly to Porco Rosso as a manga that Miyazaki created separately for, for The Wind Rises. That was a, a nine-chapter manga series or a sto- serialized story really that he contributed to model graphics the hobbyist magazine for air model kit enthusiasts uh, which he did around 2009 um, around this time Miyazaki had just released Ponyo and he was really keen for his next film to be his first feature sequel <gasps> Ponyo on a cliff by the sea 2 what? yeah really? exactly yeah would you have wanted to see that film? <laughs> <laughs> of all the films it is I am well, I suppose because it's so like child friendly, and it did well, I, yeah, and he clearly responded to the material. But MVP, secret hero of the, the story, Toshio Suzuki said, "Hey, Miyazaki, maybe don't do that. Why don't you turn that manga, The Wind Rises, into a feature? You clearly care so much about this story of an engineer in the in the." interwar years and the planes he designed, why don't you try and make that into a feature? Because you've never really done that before. This becomes then a really unique project for Studio Ghibli. It's a film, at least for Miyazaki anyway. It's a film based on real people set in a clear historical period. And let's look at, as I like to always do, Miyazaki's project proposal. This is January the 10th, 2011. He says, I want to portray a devoted individual who pursued his dream head-on. Dreams possess an element of madness, and such poison must not be concealed. Yearning for something too beautiful can ruin you. Swaying towards beauty may come at a price. Jiro will be battered and defeated. His design career cut short. Nonetheless, Jiro was an individual of preeminent originality and talent. This is what we will strive to portray in the film. The intention of this film is not to condemn war, nor is it about stirring up young Japanese with the excellence of the Zero fighter, the fighter plane that Jiro would go on to design. I have no plans to defend our lead character, such as by saying that he actually wanted to make a civilian aircraft. I want to paint Japan's verdant landscape from the Taisho era to the early Showa era with utmost beauty. The skies then were still clear with lofty white clouds. Water flowed clearly. No litter was to be found in the countryside. But on the other hand, 
poverty was widespread in the cities. I want to create something that is realistic, fantastic, at times caricatured, but as a whole, a beautiful film. Quite a lofty statement there. Wow, yeah. Already straight up front, complicated themes, historical, So he's saying political. that before he's even started. I mean, that's when they're about to start. <laughs> And of course, even the story is quite complicated. This is pitched as a biography of Jiro Horikoshi, who was this engineer who would go on to design the Zero fighter plane, which was the main fighter plane used by the Japanese Empire in, in the Second World War. But the story of the film actually <laughs> is, is, a, is an amalgamation of two characters. The title is taken from a novel by the author Tatsuo Hori, based on his experiences losing his wife to tuberculosis. And much of that, bu- that book is interwoven with the life of Jiro Horikoshi. Um, and it blends that fact and fiction. Um, they're both of the same generation, so they can map onto each other quite well. But it's not really simple biography of either. More from this directorial statement on that particular topic. Our film combines Jiro and Hori, two actual people of the same era, into one person, our central character. It will be an unusual work of complete fiction that depicts the youth of the 1930s. It's the story of young people doing everything they can do to live in the 1930s, an era of recession, unemployment, hedonism and nihilism, war, disease, poverty, modernism and backlash, a march towards the ruin of a stumbling and falling empire. Wow, that's you know not too far away from actually his directorial statements for maybe the yeah. previous six or seven films he's made. He's always talking about the collapse of modern society, but he almost has found the perfect time to do that, the perfect context here. He's not just talking about setting a film in a Europe where the World War, World War, World Wars never happened and they didn't lose their innocence or. Um, a Welsh mining town yeah. post-collapse like or anything like that. At least with the destruction in his other fantasies, we have the distance to know that it is fantasy. Mm-hmm. Here, we don't have that barrier anymore. He also talks in other um, interviews about how he just can't do escapist fantasy anymore at this stage. This is post-recession, post you know, the, the earthquake and the early 2000s in Japan. So he has to retreat into history and yeah. find something well, meaningful well, as there. As much as it's a film for people living in the 1930s, clearly he's, he's coming out of it for a film people living in 2011. Mm-hmm. I don't really want to go too deep into the production here um, because it's covered so well in the documentary The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, which I really hope we can cover someday. I'd love to share it with you. But let's just say Miyazaki would call it a hellish experience. <laughs> it drags on and on and on. The film was released July 20th, 2013, and immediately it's announced that it would be his last film, Honest, Truthfully, really, we're not kidding you this definitely time. It his definitely last is. Film. It was supposed to be released in double double bill with Isao Takata's The Tale of the Princess Kaguya as a nod to it being the 25th anniversary year of the Totoro Grave of the Fireflies double bill. But Takata, descended from a giant sloth, is taking his time. Uh, that doesn't come out until a year later. Reportedly, at one of the very first screenings, I don't know, don't know if it's a public screening or a press screening or an internal staff screening, Miyazaki cries when he sees the finished film with an audience for, for, for one of the first times. And there's a great clip on the Blu-ray. There's a very awkward press conference where it's Miyazaki, Hideaki Anno, who provides the voice for Jiro, who used to be an animator way back when, turned into a filmmaker, created Neon Genesis Evangelion in his own way as an anime titan. And he comes back to provide the voice for the main character in this film. And it's a very awkward press conference moderated by a guy who says he's never done a press conference before, has never met Miyazaki before, doesn't really know what to ask. And when this comes up, 
that he that Miyazaki cried. Hideaki Anno just really grills him. So, yeah, he was blubbing. I've never seen him cry. I think it's the first time he's ever cried in public. He was really welling up. He was sobbing. And Miyazaki's really visibly made off to feel awkward by this, which is great. Hazing him in public. Exactly, because usually it's Miyazaki hazing the other guys, right? It's really interesting. I'd recommend going and, uh, and watching that. But The Wind Rises is a huge hit at the Japanese box office. It grosses over $110 million, far and away the highest grossing film in Japan of 2013, even when Hollywood productions are factored in. Can you guess what was second, Jake? It was a sequel, a Pixar sequel from around this time? 2013 Pixar sequel. Uh, Monsters University? Yes, Monsters University, uh, which I think grosses only like 9 billion yen to the 12 billion yen that Wind Rises grosses. So, big deal. But not necessarily a big deal on the Ghibli scale. It it now still ranks in the top 20 highest grossing films in Japanese history behind every other Miyazaki <laughs> film up to that point. Well, every other major hit Miyazaki film to that point. I think even now Miyazaki still has five or six films in that top 20. Mononoke, Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, Ponyo, and then Wind Rises. With... Exactly, Joseph Porco, indeed. This being a prestige release, it gets the international festival rollout. It premieres in Venice in 20, later in 2013, the Venice Film Festival. That's where I saw it. I was so excited to see it. Then in 2014, it takes home Best Animation and Best Score at the Japanese Academy Awards. And it's nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars too. It doesn't win on the night. And of course, we've said this before, no Ghibli film since Spirited Away has won an Oscar, mm. even though some of them really deserve to. And I think this one really should have done. And let's look at this category for this year. The Crudes was nominated. Despicable Me Too. Ernest and Celestine, the Franco-Belgian animation, which is wonderful, but not Oscar-winning uh, quality, maybe. The winner that year was Frozen. And I think that Wind Rises could have taken Frozen on. Michael, I think you need to let it go. I have no comeback for that, Jake. I think we should move on to the review section now. All right, let's do it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay. 
Jake, we've discussed how this film is very different to every Miyazaki film we've covered to date, but also really the culmination of so many themes and threads. Did this film feel different to you or a lot of the same? Yeah, well, in a way, it feels like a full stop. So it is going to be really interesting to see what does happen next. Uh, the studio is named after warm Saharan winds. Like This is him putting the inspiration of the studio almost into the name of the film. We're looking at... Uh, Really, the the heart of his inspiration has always been flight planes. He talks so elegantly and enthusiastically about them. Um, it almost feels like it's a surprise it's taken this long. Mm. Uh, we've always had elements of fantasy, like we've had the planes, but there's a magical pig. Or, <laughs> or we've had flying machines in this fantasy world. But to actually see them in the real world with real people... Uh, Initially, at the start, I was kind of taken aback. I wasn't mm. quite ready to prepare for it. Um, but I think it's magical. It is. And man, the, the structure of the film is magical. It has these multiple sequences that, or structural parts that lie on top of one another. Dream, past, present dream worlds, the world of the imagination, romance, craft. And we start in a position not too dissimilar from where Castle in the Sky, the film we discussed last week start, that started. A young boy creating his own plane with the hope of flying someday. Yeah. And that's where we, we find Jiro. And it's not really until maybe a few minutes into that sequence that you realise it's a dream. And that's where we're not really sure how much is real, how much is a dream. We have these experimental flourishes that are there from the off where Miyazaki talks about having, having in the dream world animation that can be slightly wonky. So you see when he puts on those goggles, um, when he's taken flight in the sky, his eyes bulge out at them like he's Ponyo, uh, trying to force herself into being a girl. But then for long stretch of the film, this is the most realistic and grounded Miyazaki's been in any film he's made so far. What fascinates me about this film is it's always been there, the fascinating attention to detail. Miyazaki said before that even though there are the flaptors in, or the, the tiger moth in Castle in the Sky or these intricate robots or the intricate design of House Moving Castle, he always knows how those the house moving castle will move. He knows what the inner mechanics are of these robots and machines and, yeah. and, and, well, and fantasy flying vehicles. Said about Kiki's delivery service, you need to be able to draw a map to understand the town. Mm -hmm. Maybe you, you need to have the Haynes working manual <laughs> for yeah. your flying machines as well. But this is the first time where he's focused that attention to detail on reality, on historical detail craft detail that we can actually go and look up online separately and then marrying it to big themes, historical themes things that he clearly responds to, this is not his upbringing this is almost like his father's generation this is the, the generation he grew up in the shadow of, this youth of Japan that were, you know, all of their dreams were torn apart by World War II and the, the loss that came after that I do think is this secretly a Takahata film? We've talked before about Heisa Takahata in Only Yesterday, in Pompoko. Breaks reality. He breaks reality, but in service of almost a journalistic eye. Pompoko is about 
rapid urbanization. Only yesterday has that safflower die mm. <laughs> diversion halfway through where you learn about local industry and farming. Yeah. This film is just as interested in teaching you how engineers work, how that brain works. Yeah, and it's it's really interested in process and how things get made. Um, and as you said, the, the rouge making in Only Yesterday is brilliant and you just have that section of the film to enjoy the process of something wonderful being put together. And here the celebration of rivets that can go flush against the metal of a plane and what a lovely detail mm -hmm. um, and now I can't look out of an aeroplane window at a wing and see rivets on there and not think of this film on your daily jet set lifestyle oh yeah I'm always flying around <laughs> <laughs> but I love those sequences because he uses cross sections and diagrams and schematics almost like I don't know if you had those books as a kid. They were Dorling Kindersley books where... The cross-section books. The cross-section books. Yeah. I, I had the Star Wars ones where you show what the inside of the Death Star would look like and how it all fit together. It was just so fascinating. And that's there in this film. It reminds me of Martin Scorsese's Hugo, mm. which for an hour of its runtime is about a kid in Paris with, with, with a clockwork robot and then another kid and they're going around and suddenly they meet George Melies and he's like oh by the way I invented cinema <laughs> or I pioneered a form of colour cinema yeah. and, and magic and here's a, an actual illustrated lecture of early cinema in the middle of this movie and that's what The Wind Rises does you follow this lad Jiro you, you see the great Tokyo earthquake a sequence that's incredible let's yes. come back to that in one second but then suddenly it'll stop and say well Japanese aircraft at that time was still wooden and we didn't oh, know how to so do metal good. planes and we had to take inspiration from the, the bones of fish and the mackerel. It's really incredible. Yeah, it's amazing how just again, but it's the mackerel bone we're looking at nature and humanity and mechanics all coming together and, we, and it's almost a throwaway thing at the end but then you get this, this mackerel bone becomes this through line through the film that he is going to build this perfect construction and again it's those three linking things that are going to bring it together let's go back to that earthquake yep. for a second <laughs> this film has several just breakout standout sequences that can stand alongside any other Miyazaki film and top it considering this is a two hour long quite heavy historical drama with a lot of diagrams and flush rivets in, it does also have that earthquake sequence, which is as magical as anything you'll see in Spirited Away or House Moving Castle, the way that the landscape rolls like a sheet, the way that the score, Joe Hisaishi in the, in the sound design and the score used a lot of human voices instead of orchestral instruments. So you have this attention to detail, but otherworldly detail yeah. in the score. It's Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and you've got those dreamlike moments above the clouds, the dreams of what aeroplanes can be. And to me, the best scene that Miyazaki has done to this point is the airplane heaven in Porco Rosso. And I'm immediately back in that. It's totally awe-inspiring, and that goes down to the musical level as well. You're really getting a sense of what he believes, he really believes, as the film says, that airplanes are beautiful dreams. But they're cursed dreams as well. Mm. I think, do you think he pulls off this idealistic 
but cynical, but hopeless, but futile, but hopeful <laughs> view of things. Where we've said we've said that one of the unifying themes of many of his movies are the world is broken, but we must struggle to live, and that's the theme of this film as well. You know, when he meets Caproni. Do you know what one of Caproni's main uh, planes that he designed was called? No. The Ghibli? Oh. So he meets this larger-than-life Italian figure with his incredible multi-level wooden airplanes in this dream world, and he says, you only have ten years to be a great creative mind. Use it to your fullest. Just, your life will be... You know, your creative life will be cut short. You need to live to the full, and then, as another character says... Japan will blow up. It is almost the perfect encapsulation of that feeling that the world is going to end someday, but try to live it to your fullest, mm. right? Maybe. Um, but I think there's part of it that's maybe him uh, wrestling with the time spent animating as well and making films. Um, there's that parallel but that Jaro does, he loves making planes, but even though that's his creative passion, how much of his life is consumed by that? How much can he dedicate to other aspects of his life? Mm -hmm. um, what did Goro say? That he's a great director, but is he a great father? Uh, yeah. About Miyazaki. And I think there's maybe when it comes to the end of this film, it's, it's him trying to maybe say that perhaps I should have not been spending so much time making these films. Uh, like an almost an apologia for... His life's work? Yeah. Because then this brings up this romantic subplot with Naoko, who he... They have a fantastic meet-cute on the train during the earthquake where his hat blows off and she catches it. It's just almost, the, in terms of romantic melodrama, one of the great meet-cutes, I'd say. But then they meet later on. T tell me what you, you made of this whole thread, Jake. Well, I think this is where the film lets itself down. Um, hmm. because I love them as a couple and I love the scenes that they have together. Um, they, I had two teary moments because of them, um, but I don't think she's in the first half of the film enough uh, to really get a sense of who she is as a person because ultimately in the second half of the film her job is to be a romantic attachment and an emotional attachment for us, and to be ill. Yeah. She becomes the cliché of the infirm lover mm. of romantic melodrama. The, I think the representation of her tuberculosis when she has that ruptured uh, hemorrhage in her lung is is quite violent yeah, and poetic and beautiful. You know, it's where she... She vomits blood all over the, the palette when she's painting on a hillside. I'm sure painting on a hillside is a highlight in this film for you, Jake. But there's something fascinating. This whole characterization of Naoko and that thread is enough to knock this film down a peg for me. I think everything else is perfect. Everything else is firing on all cylinders. And then he just... It makes me wonder whether Miyazaki has a problem with female characters. Well, he doesn't have a problem with female characters. He's amazing with... 95% of his female mm. characters but once they become a romantic lead they they just lose something compare her with um with Keo who is Jiro's younger sister 
who has so much life behind the eyes and fire when she's bounding about the house, when she's uh, scrambling up the, the roof tiles to go and sit with him and she's pointing out the shooting stars that he can't see because he's short-sighted. When she's older and she is fighting against tradition to become a doctor and, and, and train to be, train med, uh, study medicine, she's got such life to her and character to her and now Ko has none of that. She becomes the perfect plastic doll um, that really is just a vessel for the tragedy of the film. Yeah, but there is just these. They do have these lovely lingering romantic moments that well, do really hit me. Like the idea of catching the hat is replayed again when they meet for the second time later in the film, and I absolutely loved it. You've got this combination of a paper plane flying in the sky as they meet again. Um, and there's a bit where, going back to him constantly working and putting that, uh, and trying to balance that with his relationships, it's a really beautiful moment when they're just lying in bed, she's clearly ill, tired, and he has to work, and he sits up, and he's got his desk, um, and then he just drifts one hand to the side of the desk and holds hers as she sleeps. That's lovely. But then that's a double-edged shot, right? Because he's both there with her mm, working, but he's there with her working. Yeah, he's not. You know, he should be savoring that time with her. Yeah. Um, that makes me think that you know, we said if he was like all of his films are in this film. That makes me think of my, my neighbor Totoro, the you know the the infirm mother who's far away, who's distant, and then the father who's there scribbling away in his study. But you. But I think he almost pulls off what he set out to do in his director's statement mm -hmm. about this isn't a film of resolution. It's a film of like global but personal conflict. Yeah. And uh, you do come out of it with that confusion. And and that makes it feel... I don't want to sound like I'm ever cheapening the, these films, but this feels almost like a, a mature movie. Mm. His films are always full of wisdom and give you a nugget to go away and chew on and digest, but this film has so many themes, <sighs> so many things to talk about and pull apart and think about, and that is just one thread that maybe doesn't resolve in the way that I think so, would like it to. I, I don't like the idea of female character just being used to say, go and live and create your stuff, I'm going to go off and die in silence yeah. now. Um but they do have a sex scene. Yes, I know. Hey, oh, <laughs> Miyazaki. We're just, yeah, we're turning into Howard Stern for just one second there. <laughs> Getting to have the wolf whistles and the yeah. howling in the background. Add that in and post, Steph, please. Yeah. Um, um, it's full of incredible quotes. And uh, since Porco Russo, I think this is the best one for one liners. Oh, yeah? Uh, I mean, we're not arms merchants. We just want to build good aircraft. That's that's Jiro. And when Jiro says, "This would be perfect if we left the guns out," <sighs> when he creates his perfect plane, How, Jake. Very quickly, we need to wrap up. We, we, we can talk about this film all day, I'm sure, but. Politically, how does this film land for you? This was very controversial when it came out. Some people thinking that it was excusing the uh, the military-industrial complex behind the militarization of Japan, because considering the Zero Fighter and many of the planes that these engineers were creating were used to horrible effect. Yeah. Uh, Miyazaki's really trying to push through that to the idealism whilst also paying service to the reality of it. Hey, How does it land for you? I don't think it gets it completely, but I think 
it lingers at the end on a note of regret um, about the construction of them. And for me, that was enough. The airplanes are beautiful dreams, but they can create nightmares. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is put out there. Uh, I don't think it is perhaps as balanced as it should be, but I also don't have uh, enough knowledge mm-hmm. of Japanese history uh, to understand the complexities of all of that as well. But you understand there is complexity. It's not yeah. excusing anything. I think it's all there. Mm. Um, it's complicated. It's inspiring, but it it realizes that that was there are some incredibly inspired people working there at times where it was very hard to exercise that genius without being part of that system, even if you wanted to rebel against it. It's mm. a very complicated situation. It tries to show that when they go to Germany, when they have these shady characters that show up, and they, there's a visual echo that only picked up on this, whatever it would be, in the fourth or fifth rewatch. Early in the film, they have almost a, a, a sequence that reminds me of the first Captain America movie where he stands up to the bullies. And the bullies are represented as these boys with closely cropped black hair who are just barking. Later in the film, where he meets the military contractors when they're pitching to to get the contract to make the planes, they're just closely cropped black hair men barking, barking, barking. And that's admittedly separated by an hour and a half of the film almost, so maybe it's not as close an echo as you'd want it to be. But he's very much saying there that he doesn't like military people. He just likes military apparatus. Yeah. But if they didn't have the guns on, that's the dream. Mm -hmm. I think this is the ultimate Miyazaki film. It might not be the perfect Miyazaki film or the best or my personal favourite, but it is the ultimate one. I have no idea how he goes on from here. (sighs) Yeah. I know how we'll go on from here. It's onto the leaderboard, isn't it? And Jacob's Ladder. Michael, it's come to that time again where we've got to figure out where to put these films uh, in our respective orders. Gosh. Well, this is the Miyazaki film, which I think you need to have done some prep for seeing, not to make it sound like you've done, you have to do homework, but that's why I'm glad we were able to come to it after you'd seen several of his movies, because you could really appreciate everything that's in here. This is top tier for me. It definitely is. But it's not as infinitely rewatchable as many of these films in the top tier. Let me remind you what's in my top tier of the leaderboard. Whisper of the Heart is up top, My Neighbor Totoro, Grave of the Fireflies, Princess Monoki, Kiki's Delivery Service, and Porco Rosso. And I think the perfect placement for this film is alongside Porco Rosso, almost as two sides of the same mm. coin creatively. They're both films that are absolutely obsessed and enamored with the, with the power of flight and the craft of planes. But one is, as Miyazaki said, um, for those tired businessmen on their long-haul flights who just want to turn their brains off and watch something, The Wind Rises is an essay film. It's full of thematic ideas, it's full of teachable moments, it's full of information and takes on history, as well as all that magic. So I think this is top tier, next to Porco Rosso. Okay. Uh, it's definitely in the, the top half of my list as well. Um, I would probably put this just below Ponyo, which currently sits in sixth position to me. Um, that is just because I think 
Ponyo really knows what it's about. It's tight. It's for such a broad audience and manages to just be totally enjoyable while having this creative freedom um, that's so fun to watch. Um, and I think The Wind Rises will climb for me over time because even having since watched it, I've grown to love it a lot more. And just the preparation for recording this episode, there are just little bits in our conversation mm-hmm. that have heightened it even further for me. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that climb. I think that many of the top-tier Ghibli films are old friends that you can revisit and they're the same and you, they're, they're dependable. The mm. Wind Rises is something to revisit and you'll see new things. Exactly. As you grow older, as the film matures along with you. Yeah. It's, oh gosh, it's really something, isn't it? Um, yeah. Next, we're going to finish off this double bill that at the time closed the shutters at Studio Ghibli. We're going to go from what was at the time the final Hayao Miyazaki film to what is definitively the final Isao Takehata film, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya. Yeah. And until that episode, you can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael J. Leader. And you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. Bibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Lister Russell makes us sound good. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. That's me. Hi everyone, thank you for sticking with us through the credits. The nugget this week is a nice cameo in the Japanese language version of this film. There is the mysterious Germanic figure who appears halfway through the film called Mr. Castorp, or at least that's what they call him, the man from the magic mountain. His voice is provided by Stephen Alpert. You may remember way back in the Princess Mononoke episode, we discussed the man who sold Ghibli to the world the film executive who was brought on board to broker those deals with Disney when Princess Monoki was in production. Well, that was Stephen Alpert, and he was brought in to provide voice, but also provide likeness for that character. It's quite fascinating. And then, in the English language version, that character is voiced by Werner Herzog, who, especially in the sequence where he has to sing, is great value. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com AdWanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering, called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader, from AdWanted UK.